Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thank you for inviting me back, and thank you for um, hosting me here. I'm happy to get to be back with you also. Uh, <clears throat> I can help notice that the section right in front of me is conspicuously empty. But <clears throat> maybe that happens to all the teachers. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe it'll fill in. That's okay. We'll, um, yeah, we'll, we'll start by just sitting together for a little bit. And people probably came from work and school and busy weeks. So just allow ourselves to settle into being present, taking refuge here in this meditation center, taking refuge in the Dhamma and in your practice. Just connecting with the experience of being present. If you like, we can start with the sense of hearing sounds. Just noticing sounds as they come and go. Allowing the attention to be spacious. And then if you like, you can bring your attention to the experience of the body sitting. Connecting with the sense of connection you have to your cushion, ground, chair. Just allowing the usually scattered attention to collect very gently. Connection with the body breathing, body sitting. Feel like you can check in and see if there's areas of the body that are being held unnecessarily tight or tense. It could be around the jaw or the eyes. 
So you could see if you can relax on the exhale. Sometimes there's tightness around the shoulders, the arms. Again, just trying to relax, rest. And similarly with the belly, chest. And even the lower body, legs and feet. Just connecting with the sense of presence in the body that's relaxed and alert. Just gently tuning into this experience of being alive. If you notice the attention's gone to the field of thinking, you can just notice that. Gently bring the attention back to the body. Feel any reverberations there in the experience of the body. Let's try to relax again, reconnect. It's very simply the body sitting, body breathing.
Just noticing where your attention is.
So if you feel the need to stand up and stretch for a moment, you can feel free to do that in a silent and mindful way. And to improve my peripheral vision to catch the uh, angles here. <laughs> so the, uh, the title of the uh, Dharma talk today is Finding True Refuge. And I'll admit that you know, sometimes when I go and visit places, they ask for the titles like long time ahead of time. So then I think of them, and then I forget what I said. So then um, before I come, I have to look at it and see like, oh, what did I say I was going to talk about? But I was so happy to see this was the topic, because it's one of my favorite topics. So... Uh, I'm grateful to the me of six months ago or something who emailed Shelley this uh, title, this topic. And to me, it gets to something um, in some ways very poignant and basic that the Buddha talked about, which is what is the condition of our human life? What's our condition as living beings on this planet? So I include not even just humans, but all living beings. Like So we find ourselves uh, born and embodied in having some set of circumstances of our life, of certain amount of siblings, certain family. You find yourself in some location with some kind of uh, health conditions, positive, negative, some kind of weather conditions uh, (laughs) of some sort. Uh, Yeah, and then you kind of launched into this life in which uh, a lot of it is like not in your control, right? So... You get sent to school, maybe, and then you don't have control over the other kids who are going to be in your class or the teacher or what they're going to do in school. And then you keep rolling along like that uh, for a while. And uh, really, like in each year of school, it's kind of like, you know, taking birth again in a new situation, new bunch of kids, new teacher, new subjects. That goes on for a while. Then maybe you'll graduate and then uh, you feel like, oh, now I have agency because I'm an adult, right? I'm a grown-up. Uh, but then somehow you go look for a job, or you find yourself taking birth in that world of the job. Uh, you don't have control over who the other people are in that setting. Maybe if you're the boss, eventually you think you do, but even the people you interviewed show up as someone uh, on different days. So <laughs> you know, it may not be what you expected. Right? <clears throat> you move into a neighborhood, and... Um, Likely, also, you don't have control over who are all the other people in your neighbors, you know, neighbors and dogs and cats and what the city does and what instruments they play at what time of night and, you know, <laughs> like all kinds of things, right? Uh, so this is our situation in our life is that um, we find ourselves born and in this circumstances that are largely out of our control, and yet all of us in some ways want the same thing. You know, we, we, want, we want to be happy. And I appreciate that the teachings of the Buddha are like just addressing this very basic fact of our existence. Like all beings wish to be happy. Right? 
And as part of that, all of us would like to be safe. Like we would all like to be comfortable. Uh, and so this goes to this idea of like, well, well what, is, what is refuge really? You know, we all would like a place of refuge. We all would like to find refuge. Right? And even when I say that word, it might be evocative for you. Like, oh, wow, you know, that, that, I would love to find that. Like, what is true refuge? So as we go on in our life, we find ourselves seeking that. Whether or not we even know the word refuge or have any fancy vocabulary or philosophy around it, we're basically trying to organize circumstances in some way to keep ourselves like safe, comfortable, happy, right? to have some sense of well-being in this constantly changing world in which so much is out of our control. Right? So it's very poignant, you know, the circumstances that we all find ourselves in. And I mean, certainly some people seem to have a seemingly like better lot in life than others, you know, in terms of their health or the uh, wealth of their family or where they are sitting in systems of oppression and privilege and things like that. Uh, but still, all of us are, to some extent or another, subject to this uncertainty of life, the difficulties that come and go. And no amount of wealth, fame, good-lookingness, anything, uh, will actually protect you from this uh, changes and these difficulties that come. So what do we go to for refuge? And, uh, you know, it's a question that it's good to ask yourself from time to time. Like, where am I seeking refuge? And is this actually a reliable refuge? So where do you seek refuge in your life? Safety, comfort, ease. And is it a reliable refuge? Now, sometimes things are reliable until they're unreliable, (laughs) meaning they seem like they're working and it seems like it's good, but eventually not so good. So for example, if you've had relatively good health during your life, you might feel like, oh, yeah, there's no problem in uh, you know, taking refuge in the body, identifying with the body. Like, that seems to be all right. You know, little aches and pains here and there. But then once things start to like, fall apart, then quickly it's like, oh, wait, that wasn't such a good idea. That's not a reliable place to stay, reliable refuge. Right? My uh, friends and I are celebrating a, um, a decade birthday soon, 50 years old. And so we were coordinating about this trip and getting together and things. And then um, someone, who I think was me, started kicking it off by uh, listing the new ailments that we have uh, approaching this and how that impacts like, what we can do and what we can eat and you know, all this stuff. Uh, and it was interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, everybody's getting there. You know, everyone's got different versions of something that's difficult. And uh, the body is... Uh, wearing down in various ways. Uh, some of us need reading glasses. Some of us are about to need reading glasses. You know. uh, yeah, all kinds of different systems of health are uh, not uh, operating properly. Now, some people know this from a very young age. Right? Some children even have uh, significant illnesses, and so they couldn't take refuge, and oh, the body is a place to find safety and comfort. But eventually, for all of us, you know, the body is going to get older, Uh, subject to sickness, and eventually will pass away. So do we seek uh, refuge in a particular relationship? Now, this isn't to say that relationships can't be good, and uh, friendships and partnerships and community is very important. 
Uh, and if we're hoping that that's going to stay exactly as it is, kind of frozen in time as a solid, uh, completely reliable and unchanging refuge, uh, we're liable to get disappointed. And you can think about times that you have gotten disappointed like that in uh, friendships that you've had, like where someone hasn't always been able to show up, right? or in um, a romantic relationship you've had, where you know initially there was a certain excitement and projection, and then you started out to figure out who each other are, and then even if you've stayed married to the same person for many decades, you know the person that you married at 25 is different than the person that you're with at 60. So you've had to actually change and learn and grow. Uh, so you couldn't take refuge in, like, I'm always going to be married to this 25-year-old. Right? That would be a losing a strategy for <laughs> happiness and success. Now, some people do have that strategy, and then they divorce and get another 25-year-old and so on, right? <laughs> which brings its own batch of problems, too. But um, Yeah, so even with relationships and community, you know, things happen. People move or... Even within relationships, there's a lot of um, change and uh, evolution. So we can find some, some amount of comfort and, and satisfaction there, but it's not a place to find permanent refuge. A basic one that we often go to is uh, pleasant sensations. Right? So can I find uh, pleasant experiences of my life? Uh, can I go on a nice vacation? Uh, can I live in a pleasant place? Can I uh, eat good food? Uh, can I entertain myself, you know, when I'm down, right? Like, this is a very common strategy that we have for taking refuge, is like, uh, I'm going to go to whatever that is. This is a particularly poignant, uh, like, not sustainable strategy. Uh, once you start to, to examine what the circumstances are of life, which is that it's actually impossible to line up from now until death, only pleasant experiences. Right? Like you can try, but it's, it's not going to work, right? <laughs> you know? uh, and even the thing that you thought was pleasant, that you're like, I'll just get that and I'll, you know, like something that's like, oh, I really like chocolate. I'm just going to buy chocolate and eat chocolate like all the time, right? Like after a while, you get sick of it, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't hold the same uh, sway. It's not a reliable refuge, nothing. So no, no experience, no song, no experience of food, uh, no experience of uh, entertainment, of anything, will be a reliable refuge because every moment is changing and this Vedana, right, this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is also changing. So not under our control. And then there's the spacing out as refuge. Right? So maybe when you thought about, you know, what I go to for refuge, maybe it's like, certain, uh, like a TV show that I can kind of zone out on, or uh, for some people, like alcohol, um, drugs, or um, something, right? And it's good not necessarily to judge yourself as, like, bad or, you know, stupid for doing that, but just try to be aware of, like, what are the habit patterns and see, like, oh, I'm going, going for refuge to this, and, like, let's see what, how well that works. And do I want this to be the condition of my life? You know, like, what's the result when I go to this? You know, do I end up kind of sleepwalking more in my life? So now I've told you all the things that don't work, right? So <laughs> hopefully there's enough time to tell you what might work, right? Otherwise, it's not, uh, it's not so good. So um, the Buddha did answer this question. And he, 
he said, like, yeah, there's happiness to be found from pleasant experiences. So he didn't say that, like, oh, all pleasant experiences are bad, you should avoid them, anything like that. And in fact, in his own um, path of, of life, in his own kind of spiritual quest, he went through both sides of living a life of full indulgence in totally pleasant sense experiences and finding that that didn't bring some deep satisfaction and refuge and understanding to him. And then he lived this life of totally avoiding those. Not only avoiding them, but like flagellating himself and like mortifications and um, see if we have any. These are all the like decently fed Buddha statues here. But there's some in which he's like <laughs> eaten like he's, it's like one grain of rice a day. And he's all, you know, he says his stomach was so sunken in. You could see his spine through the stomach and he says his, uh, the print of his buttocks was like a camel's hoof print. And, you know, he's got all emaciated and stuff. Um, and then he found that wasn't working either. Right? Like that wasn't the way to refuge, happiness, wisdom, understanding as well. And so then he's, he found this, uh, this middle path, you could say. So neither of those really is what it is. But through practicing awareness, through examining the, what is the nature of what we call our human existence, you know, let me find deep understanding through looking through my awareness and through my direct experience at what is, what is this life? What is this that we call being a person? You know, what is what we call reality? How is that constructed? How does that come to being uh, in our awareness or in our seeming consciousness? And what is the nature of that? Right? What, is, what is really the going on here? So through doing that, he kind of looked through the different aspects of what we consider to be our experience and uh, saw them all as um, not worthy of taking refuge in them. Right? The experience of sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, uh, and even the mind, too. Right? The mind itself, like trying to rely on a particular thought to make you happy, um, taking refuge in that. Right? So then next he found, like, oh, there's actually a certain kind of happiness and refuge that can come from meditation, actually. So from deep states of concentration, collectedness, there's a happiness that can come from uh, shutting out the states of mind that are blocking happiness and well-being. So uh, being able to temporarily box out greed, hatred, delusion uh, when you're in deep meditation. So meditation can be a refuge, uh, and that's a good thing. That's not considered a bad thing. That's the case. And even like a meditation center like this, like maybe you feel like, oh, common ground, this is like a refuge for me, you know, in the city and the chaos of the world, like I come here and, and that's a wholesome, like positive thing. So not to say that there's nothing there. And it also is still subject to conditions. So all of this, so having deep meditation is subject to conditions and even a meditation center is subject to conditions. So really the deepest place we can take refuge and the deepest understanding can have is uh, that which he spoke about as this uh, awakening. So this um, freedom, the liberation that can come from having the deepest understanding and direct insight into the truth of the way things are. And that can come through applying our mindfulness, through practicing meditation. But it's not the meditation itself. It's actually like what we can learn through the meditation. So there's, you know, there's like a lot of um, positive spin about mindfulness these days, which I think is um, mostly good. Um, but really the whole goal of mindfulness is not like for mindfulness, like a mindful 
what happens if we have a mindful world? Like, really, we want to gain a more wise world, right? Like a wise and loving world, wise and compassionate world. Like the results of what we can gain from the practices that we do uh, is really where there can be freedom. So the, those of you who are uh, familiar with the Buddhism and Buddhist practices know this, this word refuge is used as a translation for this uh, uh, chant or something that's done often in the beginning of practice periods, or some people do it every time that they sit. I take refuge in the Buddha, take refuge in the Dhamma, I take refuge in the Sangha. And you know, I think uh, people who are coming to Dharma practice or meditation um, from different religious upbringings or different um, conditioning can have uh, varying relationships to something like that, like I take refuge in. And then if you do it in Pali, it's like buddham saranam gachami, dhammam saranam gachami, sangham saranam gachami. I like it myself, uh, but I didn't always like it, I'll say. <laughs> I like it because uh, it feels, one, like a connection to this tradition of thousands of years of people who have been on this path. You know, it's not just like you knocking around trying to figure it out. Like you're part of this uh, community of people that stretches across thousands of years, so across time and across the entire globe of people who are practicing, who are interested in awakening, who are interested in learning and developing and growing in this way. And in finding what the Buddha says is our birthright. It's our birthright to understand what this life is, who we really are. Also, there's a way in which uh, taking refuge in this kind of broader way like that can help to let go of some sense of struggle of like, okay, here's me and my meditation practice, right? Or even with uh, some of the uh, techniques, specific techniques of uh, vipassana, of insight meditation that we might practice, um, there are a lot of different varying techniques, and some of them help us to notice, like, what's the experience of the body, and then to see that as not me or mine, what's the identifying experience of emotions, not me or mine, what's the experience of thoughts, not me or mine, going through you know, the different foundations of mindfulness. But then sometimes we're left with this vague sense that there's a me who is doing it all. Right? So sometimes that's the identification with awareness itself, right? with the vinyana, with consciousness. But it's like, oh, here's me, the meditator. And so still there can be this identification and this in some ways, like anytime there's a, uh, I Ajahn Moon said this, anytime there's a center in the knowing, uh, there's a possibility of suffering. Right? So then there's the possibility of struggle, there's a possibility of, uh, again, it being like me and my project, or me and this thing I have to get to, or, you know. And again, you're back in this duality in which there is uh, suffering. So sometimes this taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha for me is like a little bit like, dropping it all, you know, like, you do have to learn the techniques, as uh, I was describing, you know, but then to be able to, in some ways, like, let it go, and there's some part of taking refuge that's like falling back, like a trust fall, you know, back into something. So what is that something? Wouldn't you like to know what that something is? (laughs) Uh, For me, I would say the Dhamma is the word that uh, maybe approximates that the most, Uh, take refuge in the Dhamma. The Dhamma as like natural law, as the truth of the way things are, or as nature. And so there's a way in which uh, taking refuge in in Dhamma is like recognizing 
oneself as part of nature, as not separate from nature. And that includes natural law and the environment as nature. And uh, you know, the more that we're able to do that, uh, the better that our life can be, the less we kind of struggle and suffer and misuse things and make mistakes and have kind of friction with um, the world, I would say. Also for some, this I take refuge in the Buddha is very helpful. I take refuge in the Buddha can be this uh, Buddha, the historical person and the teachings uh, that he gave, can have respect for him as a teacher, like I go to refuge for, uh, to the Buddha. And when he was alive in the stories of him teaching, um, people would come to hear him speak. And at that time, there was like a lot of different uh, spiritual teachers around in northern India. Uh, so it's, it sounds like from the accounts of it, it's like a very rich time of different uh, meditation styles and traditions and um, doing different things. And so you could go and like sit with different ones of them and hear what they had to say and try it out. And so when someone would hear him and they really like bought into it and they, they got it on some level what he was talking about, even if they weren't fully awakened, they would say like, oh, I go to refuge, I go for refuge to the Buddha, which means like, yeah, I'm going to follow what you say. Like I'm going to like sign up for this, right, for whatever time. So uh, going for refuge to the Buddha also can mean, though, that uh, I go to refuge, uh, I go for refuge to this awakened mind. Because the Buddha wasn't actually his personal name. It wasn't like the given name he got at birth. The Buddha means uh, like the awakened mind, awakened one. So going for refuge to the Buddha means like, oh, I go for refuge to this awakened heart mind, you could say. Uh, And also, I go for refuge to this possibility that all of us can realize this. So that all of us have this potential for uh, full awakening, for liberation, for freedom from suffering. And then this last one, I go for refuge to the Sangha, um, you know, sometimes that's uh, said as community, um, and sometimes it's meant more specifically as community of practitioners, and then sometimes even more specifically as the uh, community of practitioners who have actually uh, realized the Dhamma, so that the teachings that are about this potential for awakening, for liberation of heart and mind, uh, are not ones that are just like fairy tales, that there have been people and there are still people who are actually following this path and who are awakening. And so knowing that, recognizing that, trusting in that, uh, to whatever extent it feels like you can or it's helpful, uh, can be something that's powerful also. But in some ways, it's sort of like whatever one of those seems to work for you can be helpful. That is not a prescription at all that you have to do that or make that part of your practice, but uh, I feel like since talking about refuge, should at least mention those aspects of it, too. The last thing I want to mention is about, um, you know, usually our strategy for well-being, as I was saying, is to be like, how can I find refuge for myself? But this other aspect of reflecting on refuge is, to what extent am I or is my life creating refuge for others? You know, and that kind of turns it around. And basically, any time that you're suffering with something and struggling with something, if you ever start to consider other people, it usually alleviates your suffering like a lot. <laughs> so general blanket suggestion around that. Um, but so in what way am I a refuge for other people? And the Buddha actually gives some suggestions around this too. 
Um, one of the suggestions is actually, underneath of it, five suggestions, uh, which is the basic training precepts or guidelines that he recommends that uh, we attend to as lay people. So I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not offered to me. I undertake the training to refrain from harming others with my sexuality, sexual activity. I undertake the training to avoid wrong speech, false speech, harsh harsh speech, abusive speech, and even unnecessary speech. And then I undertake the training to avoid intoxicants that will cloud the mind and that will make me thus break numbers one through four despite my best intentions when I'm sober. <laughs> so you can think about you know, what would the world be like if this was the case, you know, if people were actually following these. Uh, it would be a very different world. And you know, this is a city, like I live in a city also, and uh, a lot of stuff you read in the newspaper about what happens in the city is about uh, transgressions of the precept, right? like um, crime that's happened. So people that have harmed each other in different ways. Uh, and you could think about, you know, and it, it's helpful to reflect on sometimes, like, what's my relationship to each of these, each of these trainings? Times when uh, I have actually felt that towards someone else or have enacted that towards someone else, and then times in which someone else has enacted that towards me. And then what about times in which I've been with someone where I feel so confident that, like, this person is not going to do any of that to me, you know? Like, if you could think about people in your life or people you've been near, any relationship, it's like, I don't feel like this person's going to physically harm me. I don't feel like this person's going to steal from me. They're not going to be sexually creepy with me. I feel like they're going to be basically, like, honest and kind when they speak to me. Uh, And they're not going to be erratic in their behavior. Like, they're not going to be using substance enough that I don't know who I'm going to get, you know, on any given day. So, you know, that creates a sense of safety for people. And so all of us actually have the potential to uh, do our best to be that kind of person. You know, to be that kind of person for kids, to be that kind of person for adults, to be that kind of person for people in our family, to be that kind of person for our colleagues, to be that kind of person for strangers even, right? <laughs> to, to actually be a person who strangers feel like they can trust and is not going to harm them. And what a different world it would be if we could do that. And then as we continue to do our practice, you know, and we notice, well, what is it that prevents us from doing that? It's when there arises some, um, you could say like a blockage or uh, obstruction of the mind that we believe in and causes us to act from rage, from greed, from some kind of delusion, you know, in that moment. Fear, a lot of times, anxiety, sense of lack, something like that. And then that plays out in doing something that we later regret. So through the practice, we can learn to see those uh, unskillful states of heart and mind sooner and sooner. Uh, We can actually decrease their power over us and eventually actually uh, uproot them. Uh, So we can uh, change the way that our hearts and minds show up in the world too, which is very powerful. And the world needs this. You know, the world needs refuge. We need refuge. The world needs refuge. And our own practice, uh, our own attention to our behavior, our own commitment to uh, 
following these trainings, learning from them when we mess up, which surely we will, uh, is a gift. It's a great gift that we can give. And it's said to bring uh, great happiness uh, both for ourselves and for uh, all those around us. A sense of freedom of oppression for ourselves and then giving that gift of a freedom of oppression to those around us too. So, maybe that's enough uh, unbroken speaking from me, too. Uh, thank you for your attention to Thamma. And, um, yeah, maybe I'll give you a moment to um, meet someone in your vicinity who you may or may not know. Uh, you can introduce yourself, find out what neighborhood they live in, if that is a meaningful designation for you, or what town. Um, and then, yeah, share anything that you would like about, yeah, what are you, um, what's your impressions from this? And it could be about what you recognize as what you go to for refuge or what this makes you think of as far as something you want to pay attention to uh, for your life or, um, yeah, any reflections, no wrong answers to this question. Uh, and we'll just do this for like five or seven minutes. So it will not be a long relationship you have with this person. <laughs> Um, so yeah, find a partner. If you need a partner, you could raise your hand and then. Yeah, just reground in the sense of sitting, sense of the body breathing the heart. If you haven't done the reflection for yourself yet, uh, you can do it uh, now. What, what do I go to for refuge? What is my current refuge? And you can just be as honest with yourself as you can. You don't need to tell anyone else this. And how's it working out for me? What ways does it work? In what ways does it seem flawed? Just to hold oneself with a lot of kindness and compassion, you know, with whatever even seemingly obviously bad idea refuges we might have, because it's just the best strategy of the unawakened heart knocking around in this unsafe, unpredictable world. But we can recognize sometimes with wisdom, and yes, we can learn from reflecting. And then if it comes to you also that there's any uh, kind of uh, resolution you want to take or anything you want to explore more in relationship to this, you can take this as a resolution for yourself, as an idea, something to learn, something to explore, start, stop, change. 
observe even. So just as we continue uh, growing up, even as grown-ups. So I'll see if, um, if anyone has any um, questions about anything I said. Um, what first drew you to the practice? What first drew me to the practice? Um, hmm. I think just questions that I had about life <laughs> and things like that. And, um, yeah, looking for answers to understand about life and what it was about and things like that. I was just wondering if you might say a little more. I, I guess the part that I'm um, struck by, I guess, um, in your talk was how the practice, the meditation, you know, has conditions. And I just hadn't, I mean, I'm off retreat a couple of weeks now, you know, and so that's really that, how that coming back. And there's always this sense of, like, the mind thinking I should be able to maintain that here in my daily life. And so it's just very um, clear to me right now that that's, that that I still think that, that that's the refuge. And then you were saying it's what we, it's the wisdom that comes through the practice. Or I just wondered if you could say a little more about that, because my mind is going with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the other thing I'll say is, as I've been practicing, I, I really am trusting the changes that are happening. So maybe mm-hmm. that's what you're... Anyway. Yeah, I think that you know, changes that are happening can be the result of like, unfolding of wisdom. You know, so it's good to recognize, uh, you know, even prior to what seems like full, complete uh, arhatship awakening, it's like, oh, look, like there's learning, there's development, there's um, ways in which there's growth and seeing the way you relate to things differently. And all that is to be rejoiced in. You know, it's good to be, to see that, to be happy about that, to, uh, yeah, take, take heart in that in some ways. Um, and it's a common thing, you know, that people will go on retreat and then the conditions of retreat are uh, set up basically to be very conducive to concentration particularly uh, and to meditation practice. And then once you get out of the retreat center, unless you also live in a retreat center <laughs> as your regular life, <laughs> the conditions of your life are not oriented towards that, right? <laughs> like it seems like the opposite, you know. Um, yeah, I've noticed more and more in, in San Francisco, I don't know if this is the case here too, that um, people that like, uh, like listen to their phones or talk on their phones at like speakerphone, like in public, like on buses and stuff, or, you know, well, like uh, I was on the, the Caltrain uh, last week and someone was like watching a video, you know, with the volume turned all the way up on it. And I was like, do you not, there's like, what if 50 people in this car did that? That's not, <laughs> you know. Anyways, these are not conditions conducive to con- deep concentration and uh, <laughs> samadhi necessarily, right? Although uh, samadhi can be flexible and can face many different uh, challenges.
changing conditions too. Um, so it's good to recognize that because otherwise there's a clinging that we get, right? It's like, um, that was good, this is bad, um, like, like that, right? And um, that's another cause of suffering too. At the same time, I think it is good to recognize like what are conditions that lead to uh, well-being for my mind and body. And some of it might be some things that are related to the conditions of the retreat center, like leading a simpler life, right? Or not having, like, the TV and the radio and cooking and opening emails and, you know, like, all this stuff happening at the same time. Like, oh, there's some real uh, satisfaction that can come from uh, being able to wholeheartedly do something, you know? And that's something that you could practice doing uh, in your regular life, even when the conditions are kind of... Uh, not there in the same way, right? So I think this period of coming off retreat and being in a regular life is really an interesting one to see the ways in which like we're habitually doing things, um, or others around us are habitually doing things, but they're not actually so conducive to well-being. You know, not not leave alone like conditions that are conducive to uh, like deep meditation and stuff. Like they're just not conducive to well-being. But we're used to them or um, it's kind of like the way society goes or something, you know, and so then we just go on autopilot and do it that way. So it can be a very powerful period of like seeing like, oh, why do I do it like that? Like, what if I did it differently, right? Like, hmm. and then try it out like that, you know, yeah, something like that, yeah. Hello, my name is Eve. Um, So I want to ask about uh, finding false refuge and uh, whether um, there really is a true refuge and whether that's something that we really need to find or that that's even worth seeking. I've just um, kind of have been looking at the false refuges in my life. Um, whether, I mean, they, things that look secure like family and then, you know, family sometimes lets you down or is not giving you the support that you that you want from them. And so seeing that I can't find that from them. Um, sometimes I use food as a refuge and finding that it's not actually filling the needs that I want it to fill or just, or whether it's just something to, that's like mind numbing of watching TV or something like that. And, and I've just started to really challenge, um, like needing to, to fill that void and just letting that void be, and and asking like, do I really need a refuge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for um, thank you for your sharing your experience with that. And it's true. Like, ironically, maybe one of the refuges is not seeking refuge in an experience or in a relationship or in uh, yeah whatever sense experience. And so then, what does that leave you with? Is like that urge becoming more comfortable with being uncomfortable in some ways, right? Which is really in some ways like first noble truth of like. It's like connecting with um, with suffering, and I think one of the brilliant things that the formal meditation practice can do, like formal sitting practice, for example, is like let me sit here for this half hour, forty five minutes, an hour, and expand my ability to be present without squirming or quitting or something with whatever it is that shows up in the body and mind. You know, like in some ways that is what you are like courageously choosing to do if you choose to sit for some period. It's like, let me be here with whatever the body shows up as, whatever the heart shows up as, whatever the mind shows up as, whatever sounds come. Like, I'm going to try and be steady, not be knocked off my seat, so to speak. 
and in that we have to expand our ability to be uncomfortable, right? Like to be there with that sense of lack or gnawing or something like that. Um, and even to be okay with that sense of seeking because like that, it's like the seeking itself isn't, um, isn't bad or like it's understandable, you know, that's, that, that's there. It's only that it's sort of like, it has limited dimensions in which it uh, is able to find an answer, right? Um, which is all the stuff they're saying. And even with family, like even if they manifest per- perfectly in your life, like somehow magically follow all the scripts that you wanted for them, they also are going to get old and get sick and eventually pass away, right? So like no configuration can be there forever in some uh, like lasting, permanent way. So really, in some ways, it's like the more, I mean, this is, this is part of the Dhamma, the more that we're able to recognize that, see that, um, deeply know that, and actually live from that place, then we're less likely to be uh, disappointed, be totally um, disgruntled, be like, uh, in some ways, even like surprised. It's like, oh, okay, that happened. It's, and it doesn't mean that things aren't going to change in ways you don't like, but you'll be able to have a better balance with it. There'll be a more okayness, and that, in some ways, is like what the, like what is this awakening, enlightenment, you know, like stuff like this. I think one of the ways that um, we can relate to it is that what is a kind of contentedness, happiness, peace that can be there regardless of changing circumstance, right? Like regardless of how family shows up, or uh, what happens politically, or uh, what happens in the weather, or what happens in my bank account. You know, is there some kind of well-being, happiness, like, yeah, bedrock of okayness? And then even beyond okayness, actually even, like, joy, well-being, compassion, right? That's that yes, able yeah. to tap into. Like, no, and actually that's, joy is really what I was talking about with, with my partner when we were talking about refuge. Yeah. Is because I'm finding that if I'm, if I'm just trying to drop that void, that I'm, I'm starting to rest more on, on joy, yeah, and, great. And just yeah, so. yeah, and notice you know the, there's pain of the the struggling mind. Like it's it's very interesting to notice when there can be some period of okayness and you know joy, and and then when the mind's like, but no, if I only had that, right? No, okay, chill, chill, okay, relax, okay. And then it's like, but wait, but if I oh, no, but on TV I saw that. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's like the. The wanting mind itself is its own suffering, you know. But the uh, the trick, the delusion is that it says it's the thing at the other end of the wanting that's lacking. But it's the wanting itself, the like, yeah. Thank you. Hello, I'm Mary. Um, I'm sure I take refuge in a lot of things, and I've been watching a lot of that lately. I'll speak to one, and it's this idea of noticing how often I want to rely on my routines. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they give me comfort, you know, because I set those routines. They're mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I've been experimenting lately with... Uh, when things change in my routine, which they always do anyway, 
Um, Just this idea of, you know, in the moment noticing it and then, you know, can I be okay with this? Yeah. And it's, it's weird, you know, the change can still be hard, right? Yeah. I mean, it can be something simpler. It can be something intense, right? Um, but just that little bit of freedom of just letting go of that mm-hmm. is, uh, is pretty interesting. Practice works. Mm. It's great. Great. Thank you. And, you know, some of the routines we might have might be, like, very positive, healthy ones. It's like, I want to exercise, I want to eat well, eat breakfast, or, you know, something like that. So it's not like there's a wrong, but then sometimes conditions collude to make that difficult to happen. And then, yeah, how equanimous can we be in those circumstances? And then notice if there's a lot of suffering there, then it's like, oh, okay, something to learn from there, too. Yeah, it's like this idea that let you, you're establishing these great habits, which is what you're saying, and then maybe um, a friend calls and needs something or a child is sick or whatever it is, and it's like then if you get all angry about it, it's like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems that's crazy, but mm-hmm. I've done a lot of that. Yeah. All right. Thank you. There's actually an aspect of, um, of uh, awakening that the Buddha points to in, in one level of awakening, where one gives up the belief in rites and rituals. <laughs> you know, that one uh, sort of like understands that these uh, like kind of habitual, uh, sometimes they're like superstitions or, you know, like that that is not a place to take refuge, that that's not actually going to bring you happiness. Um, so that's one interpretation of that, that angle on things. First, thank you very much for the teaching. That was uh, spot on for me um when you were talking it was a point where you were discussing uh how you know the practice can it does help to have certain benefits you know it does allow the mind to be more mindful and to us to move through the world in a certain way and it had me uh thinking about it was like very much like the heartwood sutra like the, there are these benefits um and right now, like, I'm, I'm in a place where some of, like, the, the benefits of life, like, life is, in a, is a relatively good place in this moment. And so it's very hard at times to want to go deeper mm-hmm. because things are pretty good right now. Yeah. Uh, it's like, why meditate? Like, I'm happy, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, all these things in yeah. life are falling into place, and <laughs> now I know consciously that that's short-sighted because things will change and they won't be. So <laughs> consciously, I know it's wisdom to seek the deeper, uh, unshakable place beneath yeah. all the ch- uh, the changing circumstances. But I really do guide my practice by uh, by what my body feels to be true you know like i never force myself into a revelation that i'm not there yet i uh, allow my body to say yep this is a, this is our truth right and right now this idea of going deeper is uh it's it's an idea for me yeah you know like my body right now i, I know that's that i shouldn't substitute that which is good for ultimately that which is great which is this deeper like unshakable thing, but right now the good really feels pretty good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, sure. So how to go deeper? <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I feel like at many different points in one's um, like relationship to spiritual life or practice or the path, like, um, and the, one has to sort of like renew one's relationship to it. In some ways, like that's what you're speaking to. It's like, oh, for, and for many people, what initially got them onto meditation or uh, dharma or something is suffering, like right, capital S suffering, like big suffering, right, something, and then you know like drowning person grasping around, someone threw them life preserver of dharma. They grabbed it, and then they're like... But then after a while, I can learn to float, and it's like, oh, okay, that's going on. Right. So then you, you do have to like renew your relationship to it in some ways. So I guess a couple possible... I'll, I'll suggest a couple possible angles on it. One is like, um, you could let go of the idea of like, I have to go deeper or something like that. Because as you're saying, like some part of you is like, oh, this is good. Like, what's right... Because then if, if there's, it's like, oh, no, this is not good, you're not actually noticing it, then it's like you're in conflict in some ways. So one perspective on it could be like, let me lock this in in some ways. Lock this in is the wrong way to say it, but like, um, let me sit with awareness, with this sense of well-being and happiness that I have in my life, to kind of acclimatize my whole system to this, right? Because then in some ways, like, you start to know that as a possibility more and more. And so then it's like, oh, why would I go into this other like icky stuff because I know what it's like to actually be happy and content right? like I know that's a possibility so it's kind of like allowing yourself to kind of like fully soak in it and know it through every pore of your body uh, and yeah like as much as possible as much detail as possible like tune into that and it's like yeah I'm happy okay cool let me be super happy like be happy like feel the happy you know, right? <laughs> that's, so that's one thing on it another is that um this, this may be some version of what I had told you that you didn't have to do, which is like <laughs> to look, go deeper. But it's that even at different levels of um, like things seeming to be going fine, there's usually somewhere in the periphery little scritchy-scratchy of like, but it's totally, it's not completely that or something, right? Or every now and then there are little dips that come back, right? You know, it's not as bad as the total plummet into hell, but it's like... You know, little, right? So actually be curious about that, right? Like tune into that. And um, yeah, even if you reflect on your own like path of practice so far, um, like sometimes there's a way in which I feel like it's kind of like we're walking around and we're tolerating these huge amounts of suffering in our mind and in our actions and stuff, right? And then uh, it's kind of like walking around with rocks in your shoes. And then you're like, ah, there's a rock in my shoe. And you stop, you take it out. And then you walk around. It seems fine for a while. And then you're like, oh, there's a pebble in my shoe. And then, oh, okay, I'll take that. And then you think it's fine for a while. And then you're like, oh, there's sand in my shoe. And then, you know, so the sand is much more refined than the pebble, which is small, you know, like that. So when there was rocks in your shoes, you didn't notice there was sand in your shoes. Like that was beside the point because there was rocks in your shoes, right? <laughs> like you didn't notice at all. So in some ways, like I think as we, yeah, just be with it and then feel. Just be tuned in for that little rub, those little rubs. And then notice in some ways the if, if there's a relationship to that, a delusion part that's like, no, I'm happy, la, la, la. You know, it's like, <laughs> get away, you know. <laughs> like, just be, to be kind of tuned in in some way to be like, oh, what's there to learn? You know, like, is, is, is this true or not? You know, so that's kind of a, like, inve- another investigation curiosity type thing. And the third one is kind of more, at certain points, sort of aspirational in some ways, you know. Which doesn't have to be deeper, but it could be like, um, 
in some particular way, like if, if there's somebody who you admire, you know, like and you admire the qualities that they have, for example, like they're a really generous person, they're a really kind person, they're very compassionate, um, they're very clear-minded. Um, yes, like any anything like that. Like if you just think of someone who you admire and you're like, yeah, I would like to be like that person, you know. Uh, I would like to be more like that person. Um, then if you consider like, well, what's the quality that that person brings? It usually is a quality of, of heart and mind, right? And so then actually you can focus your practice on being curious about that and cultivating that quality, you know. And um, yeah, for a time then attend to that in your active daily life, but then also even in your uh, Dharma practice. You're like, okay, what is generosity? Like, what does it feel like when generosity is there in the heart? What's it like when it's not present? Let me get really... So then you're kind of like... Uh, not like I have to go deeper, but like if there's something that honestly naturally motivates you, you know, is like, yeah, I would like to be like uh, a better blank, you know. And genuinely, not because someone else says I should or... I think I should, or like I'm trying to be a good person, but like genuinely, I'm like, oh, I really want to be like compassionate with kids, or I don't know, whatever it is. Then, then that can motivate you to practice too, maybe. Yeah. And there's probably like ten other answers that I could give. Yeah. Cool. I'm Mike, and uh, yeah, so this this kind of relates to your um, sharing about the refuge in nature. Yeah. And also sort of relates a little bit to sort of what Femi was talking about, just about these changing circumstances in life. Um, I've kind of started noticing just through, I guess, extreme changes, circumstantial changes happening in my life, sometimes a lot of really seemingly bad things happening all at once, and then complete opposite happening and not really tr- knowing how to relate um, to <laughs> to that. I mean, that's the nature of, of life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what I really learned from, from it so far is that when there seems to be a lot of supporting conditions in my life that creates well-being and, and seems to be good fortune... I want to own that experience. Like I really, you know, created all these conditions for things to be the way that they are. And it's just like I can almost watch this whole identity around it built. And then when um, everything falls apart, then I go into the default of blaming myself um, and in endlessly investigating all of the c- causes and conditions or trying to yeah. inve- investigate all those causes and c- causes and conditions and it's really is kind of this bottomless pit of suffering yeah. and it's like i hit rock bottom with that um just in the last year and so what i came to discover it was like now that things have kind of settled that it's like it's that identification that created the suffering it that was really the problem (laughs) that and that has like become such a good reminder for me where conditions are now kind of more stable Mm. for me to be not to not take the bait of becoming really identified Mm -hmm. with those 
um, causes and conditions. And when things get really difficult, then taking, you know, also then taking refuge in nature, Mm -hmm. realizing that there are endless causes and conditions that we can't understand that Mm -hmm. are not comprehensible and really taking refuge in that. And I've learned that's allowed me to really lean into circumstances Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, I accepted a job, didn't get my dream job, but I accepted a job that is, 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 um, going to support me. And it's like, normally I would suffer a lot about how I'm, you know, not (laughs) meeting my professional goals or whatever. And it's like, being able to lean into the way things are, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and just like simple, very, you know, kind of simple ways like mm-hmm. that and trusting that it's part of this unfolding of, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> infinite causes and conditions. Um, so yeah, I guess it's just like, I think really, you know, I'm having enough, you know, um, momentum of my practice and just tracking through awareness kind of you know our tendencies mm-hmm. allows to really understand mm-hmm. <laughs> um get yeah. that understanding i guess it reminds me of a um, story i think i told this story like the maybe the last time i came but it was three years ago so probably nobody <laughs> remembers it um and it, it basically is like, yeah, our ideas about how things are, like this was a good thing, this is a bad thing, like to just take that with a grain of salt because we don't always know, right? Uh, so the story, I think this is like a Chinese folk tale where there's a farmer and they have a horse and a beautiful horse and everyone says like, oh, that's such a beautiful horse, that's so fortunate for you. And the farmer's like, maybe. And then uh, the horse runs away, uh, breaks out the pen, runs away, and everyone's like, oh, that's so terrible, I can't believe that happened. And uh, the horse was like, maybe. And then the horse has gone off and uh, met a horse mate. And then they come back with many uh, foals, horse babies, yes. <laughs> so then, the, then everyone's like, oh, that's so great. Look, you have so many horses now. And he's like, maybe. Right? And then um, while uh, their children are trying to like tame the horses and get them ready to ride, and then all of them get kicked off the horse and break various limbs. And so then that's terrible. They're like, oh, that's terrible. Like, maybe. And then there's a war in the kingdom, and everyone is drafted for the war except his children, who have various broken limbs, so they manage to get to go to the war. <laughs> anyway, like, so you could like, go on and on with this story, but it's like, you know, we have an idea, like, this is good, this is bad. And in smaller ways, you know, people, like, they miss a flight, and then that flight actually crashes, right? And when they, at the time that they missed the flight, they were like, oh, I can't believe I missed that flight, it's ruining my day, you know, right? But, yeah, then they're like, well, better than being dead, so, you know, yeah. Yeah, thank yeah. you. I, I love that story, and I think ultimately it's like it doesn't really matter if we're in a place of a lot of suffering or if we're in a place of a lot of stability and fortune. The The real trick is just not to trying to investigate or own, you know. To identify, yeah. <laughs> the causes yep. and conditions, That's you good. know. Yeah. I think a friend in the side, side uh, chair section here. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Um, I personally believe that all suffering stems from identifying with the ego and living in a capitalistic society, we are forced to identify with our ego. 
so uh, for me, um, being able to meditate, I can get away from ego and I can identify with everything else. And I like to use the sun as a metaphor, like the sun shines equally on everyone and things like that. But uh, how uh, how would you talk? Uh, how would you not uh, like? How would you not identify with or how are you able to live? I guess or keep the ego in check when you live in such a world that uh, you know because if we are materialistically okay, that's because somebody is not. So, for example, because we have cell phones here, people have to suffer in other countries mm. for us to have these cell phones here, and that's just a fact. Mm. So how, I, I don't know, maybe you are Yeah, maybe, um, I mean, one way to look at it is in um, becoming more intimate in some ways with what our motivations are, like in different uh, moments, right? And that at any different moment, and even, I think this is true, like, in socialist countries also, like, you know, people have different motivations, like, arising at different times, and sometimes they're, like, generous ones, and sometimes they're, like, get-it-all-for-me ones, and it's true that systems do impact, like, how, which ones are cultivated, certainly, and which ones are rewarded, right? But noticing, like, oh, what is the result of that impulse? Uh, What's the impact on myself and on others when I do, when I act from this one uh, versus this one, right? And, yeah, tuning in, like, oh, when I have a sense of um, connection, caring, generosity, compassion, what's it like when I feel that? What's it like when I take actions from that? And then, similarly, like, what's it like when I feel a sense of um, selfishness or greed or, you know, anxiety, lack, something like that? What's it like for me when I'm in that state? And then what's it like for the actions that I take from that state? Right? Uh, and... I think that helps us sort it out in some ways in like a very visceral way. Like the more and more we tune into that is like, oh, uh, the idea of like um, getting things only for me or not paying attention to the impact on others is uh, like as we open our eyes more, become more tuned in, you know, which is also part of the practice, this mindfulness like internally and externally, you know, seeing causality of the way that we interact with things that we buy and with the environment and all that stuff, right, um, is helpful. And then seeing, like, well, where is it that we can have uh, more positive impacts? Where can we lessen negative impacts, right? So that being said, like, I think um, there is a way in which both, uh, you know, we are born in certain systems, and you can try and change systems, certainly, but also, like, um, you become a subject of the period of time you're in to some extent, right? Uh, And there are trade-offs sort of within that, and certain people have more freedom within those systems to have um, the ability to change things or to change their circumstance or something, and others don't also, right? Um, as well as there's a way, and this is not like uh, to let everyone off the hook for everything, but like, um, you know, the Buddha talked about this world. This, this world is like, there's suffering kind of baked into the world in a variety of ways, like samsara. Like it's the world of endless birth and sickness and... <laughs> This is like pessimistic Theravada and Buddhism talk, but it's like, you know, once you take birth in the world, no matter like what country or what place or like you're, you're in this and there's no way out, then you die and then depending on what you believe happens when you die, right? Like, so um, there's a certain amount of imperfection 
in the system. The only reason that's helpful to recognize, I think, is because then we don't have to um, be so much perfectionists, you know, that we don't do anything at all. Um, but also that we, in some ways, are able to make peace with the imperfections that we see in ourselves and in others, even at the same time as we could take strong effort and energy to change things. Right? So, for example, like I know there was a climate march here today, right? And there was one on Friday in... Um, also, was there one here also? In San Francisco, there was one on Friday also. Um, and, uh, and then even on Wednesday, I think, that uh, in San Francisco, uh, people shut down uh, Big Street downtown in the financial district and actually made these beautiful murals on the street, on several blocks of the street, that um, you could only see the true beauty of them from like up above. It was like, amazing. You know, very quickly, a like, whole bunch of people made these like, beautiful murals shut down the street. Um, so it's like, yeah, we all live within this system. So even the people who went to those climate actions had to get there in some kind of transport, right? And uh, so it was like a flawed, fraught thing in some ways. If you were like, oh, I'm going to be perfect and I'm going to, you know, not do anything. Or I read that someone was like criticizing, you know, Greta Thunberg for like coming on this expensive sailboat, you know, rather than flying. But it's like, but she took a sailboat. You know? <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, she's symbolically, I don't know. You know, like you could always find more and more fault in some ways. Um, and it's good to tune in um, and make change where you can. So it's kind of a, a balanced place. And I think also it's, it's helpful when we particularly are willing to be introspective about our own relationship to systems, like systems of economics and systems of oppression in all different ways, like yeah, see very clearly what our place is in that system and see, like, yeah, what am I willing to give up? You know, what am I willing to give up for this, too? Uh, and yeah, as people living in you know, the United States, we are in the top of the economic pyramid in many ways, still, despite our bad behavior and uh, all that. And um, yeah, it's a good thing to consider. I was sharing with my friends in the car that um, I'd heard a quote from someone who was saying, they're saying this about patriarchy, actually, but I think it's true for anything. It's like, um, I don't just want you to be an ally. Like, I want you to be a traitor to the patriarchy. Right? So I don't just want you to be an ally in whatever the struggle is with people and developing. Like, I want you to be a, a traitor to the advantages that you gain by your place in the system. You know? That was powerful to me. You know? Like, not just as someone who's on the low end of many systems of oppression, but you know, as someone who also, in some schemas is on the hand, like someone who just took a plane here to fly here, right? Like, that's something not a lot of people would do. So, yeah, it's good to be thoughtful about it. Thank you. And actually, I was reflecting on this taking refuge um, as I was, you know, because I knew this was the topic as I was going on the plane, and somehow then seeing it through that lens, it made it very poignant to see everyone dragging their little bags of stuff you know, through the airports into the planes, you know. It's like, oh, everyone's got their, like, underwear and their socks and, like, the things they need to keep themselves warm and their medicine and, you know. And then people are anxious, are we going to get it onto the plane or do we need to check it? And, you know, like, um, it just, like, through this lens, it was like, yeah, the poignancy of the fragility of our bodies and our life and how much, like, we all need to, like, drag around these little boxes of stuff to, like... (laughs) seemingly be okay and then 
And then my box of stuff, my bag actually sprung a leak, too, it seemed like. And then now my friend Shelly is kindly lending me a bag to <laughs> get my small box of things dragged around the planet. But it's like, yeah, when you, when you kind of look around, you can see, like, oh, yeah, there's this fragility and this. It just brought a lot of compassion for all of us. You know, and some people have more stuff and strollers and walking sticks and, you know, like, yeah. Everything that we need to stay comfortable in our little, you know, <laughs> try to stay comfortable. And then, yeah, you know, the world of the plan is like little microcosm. You know, I was saying about the neighborhood. You don't get to choose which neighborhood you live in, right? So, you know, I was sitting in one seat. There were two very tall guys sitting next to me who I felt bad for because we're all in economy and their knees are bumping the thing. But then also because of that, they're like spreading out a lot, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So like, all right, this is the world we're in right now. It's like <laughs> three hour, three hour birth on Delta Airlines yeah, to Minneapolis here. Like you know, unpleasant. There's the unpleasantness that I have to bear, and there's also the unpleasantness that the others around me have to bear. You know, may we all be free from suffering. Like, <laughs> so all right, maybe that's enough for this evening. Then yeah, why don't we just sit together briefly and. So connecting again with our heart, with our body. This beautiful, messy, fragile human body. Appreciating our own sincerity, choosing to spend Friday night to come to Dharma talk, practice meditation, reflect with community here. Reflect on the wholesomeness of our actions and and share the blessings of our life, of our practice, as we consider all those in suffering here, in our community, and all over the world. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be free from suffering, from the causes of suffering. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.